If you have your Bibles, if you could open them up to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Our scripture today is just going to be just verse 9. Uh, but I'd like to read to start out. And we'll, read, we'll just read Romans 12, 9 through 13. Really, 9 through 21 is, is a complete section. Uh, but to just get us some of the flavor of what these verses talk about, let's start by reading uh, verses 9 through 13. I am reading in the ESV. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's say a word of prayer before we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for this privilege to come to Your Word and the opportunity to hear You speak. Understand that Scripture is Your final revelation to us. Help us to treat it as such. pray that Your Holy Spirit would be mighty among us today. Uh, that you would overcome the weakness of the speaker, the weaknesses of the hearers, and that you would truly visit with us as we seek to worship you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, I'd like to begin today with just a question. Again, verse 9 says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. My question is, what has the gospel of Jesus Christ done to you? How has it changed you? How has uh, meditating on the grace of God in the face of Jesus Christ and His work for you on the cross, how has that altered the course of your life? And I can ask the question that way because I know that it has altered the course of your life. If you're a believer, then there has been a change. Now that change might be more sudden, for some, more be more gradual. In some ways, it's a little bit of both. We're initially changed, and then we have a tendency to take two steps forward and three steps back sometimes. Uh, and so it's, it is a gradual process. In some people, that change is very extreme. You know, you, we can perceive it because there's such a distinct difference between what they were and what they now are. And there are others who grow up in the church uh, who never give in to what we would call extreme sins, and in those cases, the change may not be as perceptible. But a change has occurred because it must have, or else the gospel message wasn't effective. We know the gospel is the power of God to, in Christ Jesus to save sinners. Not only to justify, which is to declare you righteous before God, but also to sanctify you to grow you in holiness, and then ultimately to glorify you. And so today, we start looking at these verses, uh, and we're seeing a change of mind that occurs in the believer, a change in how they perceive the world around them, how they interact with others, how they feel about good and evil. Uh, the book of Romans is called by some the greatest letter ever written. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, and it gives incredible insight into the Gospel. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ through the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul illustrates some of the greatest argumentation ever written. Uh, I read a few of those chapters again last night, and it is just simply amazing. Just as a, a, a piece of writing, it is, it is amazing, the argumentation that he gives. But what does he define in those first 11 chapters? He defines the state of all mankind, that all mankind is in rebellion against God, that all mankind is selfish in their thinking. Uh, Jews and Gentiles alike, we've all rebelled against God. And no one is seeking after God, and no one is trying to be righteous, but then God intervenes. And then He shows how God saves us, not by works that we have done, but how we are justified by faith in Christ apart from works. Uh, how, how this uh, obliterates any distinction between Jews and Gentiles. We have all become children of the promise. And so He spends... 11 chapters dealing primarily with this doctrine of justification by faith alone uh, without works uh, with a few sidebars. And then he begins in chapter 12 and shifts towards a few chapters of application. And that begins at the beginning of chapter 12. Let me read verses 1 and 2, although this is not our text. This is the immediate shift. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so, anytime you see the word, therefore, at the beginning of a sentence, the beginning of a chapter, you know that that directly links it with the chapter before, And so Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, in other words, what I've just been talking to you about for 11 chapters, you know, what what we have been told about salvation. And so what we have specifically in in verses 9 through 11 is a list of attitudes, of of qualities, character traits, uh, actions that are to flow out of this doctrine that we've just learned in the previous chapter. And so we're going to spend some time looking at some of those. I'm going to, we look at this verse, we're going to break it into two major headings, which just relate to the two statements, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. But I want to start out with four observations that I think it'll serve us well to look at. Okay, so four observations first. The first of those observations is that this verse is a very simple statement. A very simple statement. There's really not a whole lot of room for interpretation. There's not a whole lot of room for, there's not a whole lot of wiggle room, if you want to call it that, uh, in this statement. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And the simplicity of the statement means that it can be understood by everybody. And we don't have to worry about with our children that we're hitting them over the head with huge theological terms or concepts. This is a simple statement. It can be understood by the old as well as the young. Uh, however, the simplicity of the statement actually could have a negative effect as well. It's positive in that everyone can understand it. It's potentially negative because we have a tendency to speed right through it. Uh, we consider that long list that follows, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another with, in showing honor. 
Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be, pray, be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. I, I, I think we have the tendency to be able to just blow right through those. And if you've read that lately the last time in your family devotions or your personal devotions, how much time did we spend on each one of those statements? Probably not a lot. I, I, I wouldn't spend uh, a lot. We would think about it a little bit, but we would go right through. And so it can have a negative effect because we can just blow by it without really considering what the ramifications are of many of these statements. Uh, and so I think that's a benefit of preaching, uh, especially in an expository way where we would go verse by verse. There's certainly nothing wrong with taking verses 9 through 21 and just getting a common theme, but we have a lot of benefit from going verse by verse through them. It gives us a reminder that we ought to pause and we ought to meditate uh, on the richness of God's Word. All right, so observation number one is, is it's just a simple statement, but observation number two that is connected to that is that this is a simple statement with massive implications. Simple statement with massive implications. And I would go out on a limb to say that if we could get our children to latch on to the truth that is stated in this verse, then we would save them from a world of folly that they are likely to deal with. A world of, of futile thinking. Now, why do I say that? Well, because the verse says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. What does it not say? It doesn't say, avoid what you think is bad. Hold fast to the things that make your life better. It doesn't say, abhor what society has decided, has decided today is, good, is evil and hold fast to the things that society has decided will help it out. It's showing objectivity. It's showing that evil and good are objective, not subjective. So objective means they're based on something else, and that something else is, of course, God, His moral law, uh, His revelation in Scripture. Subjective means they're based on just experience, the way that I feel, those kinds of things. And, of course, this would be a big thing for our kids to latch on to because this is completely the opposite of the way that our culture lives. Our culture paints a completely different picture in what we call postmodernism. And postmodernism essentially says that all truth is subjective. Postmodernism and the most intelligent minds on the planet say that what you believe and what I believe can be completely contradictory, and that's okay. They're both true. Uh, I had a family member tell me that. I've had more than one person tell me that. That if our views completely 100% contradict with one another, that's okay. They're both true. Because they're true to me. What I believe is true to me. What you believe is true to you. That's by very definition what we would call futile thinking. Or folly. Okay? But it's prevalent among the most educated minds on the planet. Stephen Hawking, who is a, a physicist... Uh, would probably be argued to be one of the most intelligent people in the world. Uh, but he's, he's come up with an alternate universe theory in that if I believe the light is red and you believe the light is green, that's actually okay because we're living in potentially alternate universes. It's about as far as I dug into that one to completely understand. Huh? That's what he says. 
And that's, so that's our culture. Our culture says everything's subjective, but the Bible says no. Evil and good are objective truths. They are based on something else. They are based on God. Of course, the futility of this thinking just simply proves the Scriptures to be correct. In Romans 1, 21-22, it says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So we see that there is that there is that foolishness out there, but if we can get our kids to latch on to this truth, if we can latch on to this truth as well and not slip into this thinking, it creates a worldview in us that's profoundly different than what's in the world today. It's a world of absolutes in which one thing drives our thoughts and our beliefs, and that one thing is God's revelation of Himself. And that is perfectly found in the Scripture. And so those things are the ultimate truths instead of any subjective experience. The third observation uh, is that this is a, a genuine love will be a certain kind of love. Third observation, a genuine love will be a certain kind of love. Other translations say a love that is without hypocrisy. But this is a love that will abhor what is evil. It is a love that will cling to that which is good. In other words, these are not three separate, unrelated statements in this verse. They're interconnected. In fact, the words abhor and cling are known as participles, which simply means they define the verb in front of them, or they help to define the verb in front of them. All right, and so the verb is love. Let love be genuine, and so you could write it even abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. Okay? And so they are, uh, a genuine love is a real type of, of, of love, or a particular type of love. So we're really told from the outset here that you can't love a person without pointing out evil that you would see in their life, abhorring that evil, and wanting good for them instead. We could also say you couldn't, can't really love yourself if you allow yourself to go on and be content with evil, with sin in your life. This, once again, is a statement, is a kind, an idea that has massive implications because it's not what our culture says. We're called on all the time to be loving people. Christians are supposed to be people of love. You know, but what does that necessarily mean? Well, we know what it means according to the Bible, but according to society, people of love means people of tolerance. It means people of endorsement. It means be okay with everything that everybody else is doing, even if it's fundamentally against God's Word, even if it's evil. That's not what this verse says. This verse says, let love be genuine, and genuine love will abhor what is evil and will hold fast to what is good. It will be a particular kind of love. And so if I truly love someone and I see them living in error, living in evil, then I would point that out. Now, mind you... There are good and bad ways to point this out. And so I'm not standing up here saying that every time we see anything wrong, we ought to take to Facebook and start a campaign. In fact, that's probably one of the worst ways to start a campaign against evil I have learned from personal experience. Um, So there are attitudes, there's motives, there's the time and place, there's your relationship with the person, but the point is, is that a true, genuine love will 
be a certain kind of love. Um, and the fourth observation is that the, this statement, actually these verses 9 through 21, are grounded in the gospel. They're grounded in the gospel. These are meant to be, in fact, the headings of most of our Bibles probably have over verse 9, the marks of a true Christian. They're meant to be the, the signs, the outward signs of a Christian, and so they presume a gospel reality in a person. They assume that something has already happened to you. And they're imperatives. These are commands. These are, these are statements that are telling us the way to live, but they're based on the fact that a person has already been redeemed. They're based on the fact that a person has been justified by the grace of God in the person and work of Christ, that that person has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and given a new heart. So this is an assumption. You know. So in other words, we shouldn't go at this list and attack it as if it was you know, the marks of a true Christian, a.k.a. the pathway to salvation. That's not what it means. It's also not the marks of a true Christian, in other words, the way to stay saved. It's not either of those things. We know what our salvation is based on, or I hope we do. It's based on solely the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's based on the fact that God called us out from the world and chose us for salvation. It's based on the fact that the Spirit came and gave us new hearts and caused us to love Him. And then we turned in repentance and faith. But don't let me just tell you that. Titus 3, 5-7 says, He saved us not by works of righteousness done in excuse me, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no man can boast. 1 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so these verses show us, and we know, that our salvation is not because of works. Our salvation is because of faith in Christ. But this salvation is not a salvation that just saves a person and leaves them where they are. You don't, that's why I asked at the beginning, what has the gospel of Jesus Christ done to you? What kind of change has it made in your life? Because there has to have been a change. There's a fundamental change initially, and then there's the ongoing growth process that we call sanctification, which is a growth in holiness closer and closer to the image of Christ. And that's what we see in these verses, is it presumes that that gospel reality, that regeneration, justification has already happened and that you're in the process of being sanctified. Now, you're certainly not going to do each of these things perfectly, ever. That doesn't mean we can't try. And we should try, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can become closer and closer to meeting those, meeting those goals. Uh, the other way it's grounded in the gospel is really it's only by the power of the gospel that we could obey this command. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 paints a pretty bleak picture about all mankind. It says we are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
And the next words are key in verse 4. It says, but God, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've, all, you've been saved. So we've all loved evil. and You can't hate what you love unless there's a fundamental change. We can't just look. In fact, this is sometimes the problem, I think, that we have with our kids. They don't have a huge wealth of experience, but I think the problem is sometimes we're just looking at them expect change, change, do this, follow this list of rules. And sometimes they can't change unless there's a fundamental change in their heart. I'm not saying we shouldn't have the list, but we've got to be on our knees begging God to save our kids, to work in their hearts, because that's what's required to follow this list of imperatives. And so if you find this list of imperatives difficult, impossible, then we need to go back to the source because the source is a regenerate heart. We need to go back to the gospel uh, and uh, because it's the foundation of those marks. So four observations. It was a simple statement. It was a simple statement with massive implications. Uh, it is a definition of true Christian love. And then fourthly, it's grounded in the gospel. Now we need to turn to these two statements, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. And we'll start out with the first one saying, just asking the question, what is evil? And as has already been stated in the observation, the definition of evil is absolute. So it's not evil because you think it's evil. It's not evil because you've just decided that it was going to be evil. It's not even evil, as we said before, because society decides it's evil because it's not for the greater good. A lot of things today that society has deemed evil or, or just or bad, and it's simply because it's not for the greater good. It is evil because it's based on an objective definition of evil. It's God that defines evil. Now, we know there's no evil that is found in God, and so evil then is all that is opposed to God. Evil is all that is opposed to God, and therefore it is synonymous with sin. What is sin? Sin is simply rebellion against God's nature, His character. His character and nature are seen in His laws. It's rebellion against His laws, not accepting the fact that God is the creator of all and therefore authoritative over all. Sin is anti-God, so to speak. It represents people who are selfish and corrupt, their very nature, and they rebel against God's authority and they seek their own gods to worship. Their own gods might be people, places, things, or self. And Romans 3, 10 through 11 quotes Old Testament says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And the Apostle Paul, over in 1 Corinthians, after listing out a, a, a list of evils, which we'll read here in just a second. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So evil is objective, and it's anything that is anti-God. It is sin. Anything that is sin. All right. So that's a fairly simple definition. We just have to then figure out what is anti-God. We are told here to abhor it. Now, I would ask the question, how many of us actually use the word abhor 
in everyday conversation. I don't think any. Uh, in fact, I don't know the last time I used the word abhor a couple of minutes ago. Um, <clears throat> this is a very, very, in fact, well, actually, before I go there, it's actually not used very often in the Bible. If you do a word search, it's not found any other places in the New Testament. Now, it is found a couple times in the Old Testament, but it's still pretty minimal. So this is a word, the source word for abhor is, uh, is not overly common. And it is an extremely strong word. All right, it's extremely strong. The word abhor is a good translation. Other possible translations could be to utterly detest, to loathe, to be disgusted with. That's what it means. So we're not talking about indifference. We're not talking about preference. We're not just saying, well, I should, I should choose good over evil. I should turn away from evil. But no, we're actually told that we're to detest to detest it, <clears throat> to hate it. When we see sin, we see that which displeases God, we, we are to hate it. Right? Now, I, want, I just want you to consider, and you turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 6. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6. Let's read verses 9 through 10. list out some of the things that God hates. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So that's a pretty good list. That's actually not the most complete list that we have in the New Testament. If you flip back to the book of Romans, chapter 1, read verses 28 through 30. Romans 1, 28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's, that's a list. And that's a list of, of evils. You don't have to turn there, but Colossians 3, verses 1 through 10, start out talking about how as Christians we should, we've been raised with Christ and we, so we ought to seek the things that are above where Christ is. We ought to set our minds on those things. Verse 5, he says, we need to put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now, you must put them all away. And he has another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth, lying. And instead of doing those things, we ought to be putting on the new self, which is created and in the after the image of Christ. 
And so, we are to abhor these evils. Clearly, God abhors these evils. Clearly, it is, as we saw there in Colossians 3, it is on account of these that the wrath of God is coming. So, it's, it's because of this. We can also see that the reason for us doing this is this, this is what you were redeemed from. These are the lists of sins that you were bought out of. Okay? You were guilty of some of these sins. I was guilty of some of these sins, or all of these sins. But yet, Christ died for us even while we were yet sinners. And so because of that, we are to live in a way that is different. We are to abhor those evils that we once lived in. Romans 6, the Apostle tells us not to present our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but but on the contrary, to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death unto life. So, we are to abhor evil because that's the reason Jesus died. Without evil, without this list of sins, then Christ wouldn't have had to take on flesh and come and purchase a people for His own possession, to pay their penalty on the cross, this is what you've been redeemed from. Now, is it difficult for us to abhor evil? It most certainly is. For various reasons. Uh, Number one, it's difficult because we live in a culture that doesn't abhor evil. We, in fact, live in a culture that promotes evil. And more and more every day, we live in a culture that calls evil good and good evil. And so if you stand up for what God said is right, even if you do it in the meekest of fashions, you're likely to experience some persecution. And it's getting more and more that way. We're called to be people of love and tolerance, but as I said before, tolerance now means full-on endorsement. It doesn't mean just saying it's okay. It means saying it's good. It means that we have to call evil good. So it's difficult for us to abhor evil, specifically some of the things in this list, because our culture does not do that. Our culture does not do that. Our culture, it's also difficult because our culture parades evil in front of us constantly in the name of entertainment. We go back up to those lists, and don't need to read them again, but that sounds like primetime television, for sure. It certainly sounds like a lot of the movies that we watch. Okay. I don't want to go off on a tangent. I'm not trying to tell you what to do. But when I consider this passage and some of the things that my eyes have consumed in the name of entertainment, I don't think I can say I abhor evil. I don't, say, I don't think I can say that I'm utterly disgusted with evil. But, That's what Christians are called to be. So sin is, evil is objective. It's based on God's definition. Therefore, it is based on sin and these lists. And we are to abhor that evil, albeit that that is difficult because of remaining corruption in ourselves as well as corruption in society at large. Let's get to that second statement that we need to hold fast to what is good. And so in contrast, genuine love both of self and and others, is going to cling to that which is good. Hold fast, cling, cleave. All of those words could be used and are used in different translations. 
Right? So abhorring evil and clinging good, we've already said, is what defines the love of a true Christian. So what is good? We know it's objective. We're not told in this verse what it is, but if we, uh, we don't have to look back very far. If you look at verse 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Maybe we didn't need to go look at that to, to know that. But what is good is whatever God says is good. And what is evil is whatever God says is evil. And where does God say those things? He says them in the Bible. He says them in uh, the Scriptures. And so good is defined by God and it's characterized by His will, His moral will, which is revealed in all of the Scriptures, summarized in the Ten Commandments. And we're to cling to that which is good. The commands of God, the desires of God, the nature of God, all these are good objectively, and we're to cling to those. We're to love the things that God loves, and we're to hate the things that God hates. Paul puts it like this in his letter to the Philippians. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We have another list. Only this is a different list. This is the list of the things that God loves and the, the attitudes and the motives and the ways that we ought to be living as Christians because we've been redeemed from evil and we've been redeemed unto good works. So, we're to cling to it, or the ESV says hold fast. This word is actually just as extreme as the word abhor. Um, I love the ESV, but I, I think cling or cleave might give the idea a little bit more of, of uh, than holding fast. Uh, the word used, is used in 1 Corinthians 6.16 to describe the physical union between a man and a woman. It literally means glued together. When I think of the word cling, I think of my little niece and how she is what we would call one of those clingy kids. And if you've ever had a clingy kid, you know that they literally just attach themselves to your leg and you're trying to move and they just won't let go. And you get this idea that if somebody grabbed them by the feet and lifted them up, that they would literally go horizontal and they would not let go. That's the idea. That's clinging. Okay? And we're to cling to that which is good. We're to be disgusted with that which is evil. We're to attach to the good and not let go. Now certainly, there are a number of good things that are listed. There are a number of good attitudes that are listed continuing on in Romans. Uh, good things are good for us. Evil things are bad for us. You know, So true love is going to detest evil and it's going to cling to what is good. But in a Christian sense... The ultimate good for us is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the ultimate good is Christ Himself. And so, all other good in the world may lead indirectly to Christ, but in Christ, the goodness of God is fully realized. So as believers, we would want to cling to Christ, and we would want to not let go of Christ. And for others whom we claim to love, 
the best thing possible for them would be to point them to Christ with our lives, with our speech. We really can't say that we truly love a person if we never talk to them about Jesus. And I have certainly been guilty of being friends with people for years. And they know what I believe. They know where I am on every Sunday. But I haven't sat down and had that conversation. So, I mean, at some point, I I just either have to have the conversation or just stop saying you love the person. Because if I go on every day in life and I don't ever tell you that what I think you're doing is wrong because God says it's wrong, and this is, I believe, what the state of your life, and this is what Jesus has come and done in order that you might be saved, then how can I say I love a person? And, and, and I mean, good on everybody here if you've had that conversation with everybody that you deal with. But sometimes it's pretty difficult. Sometimes it's difficult to know how to do it. But the ultimate good for everyone is Christ. So as a Christian, I want to cling to it myself and never let go. I never want to trust on my own righteousness and my own good works, but I want to trust in the works of Christ. And for others, I want to know or I need to know that they need Christ too because that's the ultimate good. That's the best thing that I could uh, that I could give them. So we are to love what God loves, hate what God hates. We're to cling to Christ, the ultimate good. So in closing, I would simply ask this question, is this definition of genuine love found in the Christian something that you see in yourself? Does it resemble you? I think we all need to take a good, long, hard look at ourselves, not at others, at ourselves, and see, do we, can we say legitimately that we abhor evil? Can we say legitimately that we hold fast to what is good? Or do we simply prefer good and turn the other way and overlook evil? Or on the other hand, are we entertained by evil so long as it's in the form of media because it's not real life? As we seek to love others, do we want to do what's best for them? Do we want to give them the ultimate good, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ? And then do we act on that desire? And Paul says much of the same thing, and this is how we'll, we'll close in 1 Thessalonians 5 at the closing to his letter, another simple statement. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. And another translation says, abstain from the very appearance of evil. And so we've seen a lot of lists and a lot of evil, and I'll let you figure out for you what that means. But when I look at myself, in light of those statements, I see I got a lot of work to do. I got a long way to go. And thankfully, I'm not going to be doing that alone. And you won't be doing it alone either. You'll be doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you if you're a believer. And so we've got to keep that in mind and not look at this list and what goes on after it as a list of imperatives that we need to just pull up our bootstraps and go because you're, gonna, you're not going to be able to do it that way. We're always, we are always dependent on the ongoing mercy of Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, we thank You for uh, the truth that is found there. We, I, 
so thankful that truth is not subjective, that it's not whatever a person decides. I'm so thankful that we don't live in the chaos of that world. But instead, you've given us a full revelation in your word and the fuller revelation in your son uh, that we might know what is good and what is evil. Would you help us to be people of love, of genuine love that latch on to good, seek good in all situations and abhor evil in all situations. Help us to deal with sin in our own lives more so than in the lives of others. Help us to be conformed, transformed into the image of Christ. That we might truly be named uh, among His people and that we might look and act and talk like we are among His people. Christ's name we pray. Amen.